Welcome. You're listening to the Gideon Warrior Radio Network. This is Part 5 in The Essence of Money. We're going to subtitle it, A Little Walk Through History. Money is discernible by everyone because it encompasses free exchange of goods or services. We readily recognize production gives us something to exchange. A service is a good that we produce by exchanging it for something we value for the exchange, and each of us consume or we use something that was produced. The price or value of money is the equation most of us take little thought for. How this develops, it just does. We could negotiate or barter for its price or its value. A medium of exchange we call money is incidental to the value relationship of each party in the exchange. One party values gold, another wheat. Bankers, however, they capitalize on this relationship of goods and services, studying it and predicting, and sometimes even falsely, to understand the demand and the supply of goods in the economic market of the society, and understand the demand for money commensurate with a steady supply of the goods. The objective is to facilitate a supply of money with the pace of production, and it is done by concealing several methods used to do so. If a colony sought an advantage over another, it could increase production by infusing larger amounts of money increasing demand for a ready available supply of goods from its colony. But this inflation in production supply in the one colony might have been good for the producer in that colony, but it would be in essence bad for the consumer. Reverse this, and production would be starved, and consumers lose again, as sources of work dry up, as well as available goods and the money with which to purchase it. Many of the colonial leaders had studied history significantly, and had an acute understanding of nearly a thousand years of growing economic societies. Banking cartels they understood, consolidated their appetites for wealth by coercing and deceiving kings, princes, and governments the world over to allow them to control of the flow and the value of money, and thus, by an air of independence, they could prevent the pervasive problems of manipulation that many experience in these exchanges. However, what many do not know is that these usury banking cartels were banned from dozens of countries for centuries from operations. Slowly they began to reemerge and once again infuse their fractional reserve and usury into the governments the world over. It is rather amusing to think of Franklin schooling the Parliament in London about colonial script while the modern 1743-1812 dynasty of Ma'ar Emshel Rothschild was beginning to perfect the merchant banker cartel in London. The art of controlling money for entire governments meant that they were for all intents and purposes immune from the gallows or the guillotine. The banking cartel is not just a bank or a group of banks but an entire network consisting of banks, banking centers, commercial and private, and savings, insurance companies, and a plethora of other financial and lending institution and vehicles, and certainly a market for selling and trading of the stocks or investment transactions of companies. 
The Bank of England founder, William Patterson, had no fear of that ancient reprisal as he openly remarked, quote, The bank has benefit of interest on all monies which it creates out of nothing, end quote. This means stock, stock options, bonds, notes, certificates, literally anything one wishes to use as money. England's 1764 Currency Act was an example of the money muscle used against the colonies of America. In less than two years after the 1789 Constitution is officially ratified and enacted by each of the 13 colonies, the first privately owned fractional reserve bank is formed the Bank of North America in 1781. The Bank of England orchestrated the crisis in America by massive counterfeiting and flooding the North America colonies with more than 40 times the currency in circulation, finally collapsing it in 1786. James Madison remarks of 1787 duly note the condition, and I quote, History records that the money changers have used every form of abuse, intrigue, and deceit and violent means possible to maintain their control over government by controlling money and its issuance, end quote. Of course, the word intrigue means to plot, scheme, intend to effect some purpose by secret artifice. Very insightful. I still remember reading a quote from a book I had read in 86 or 87. I believe the title was Our Ageless Constitution. And the quote, Since the federal constitution has removed all danger of our having a paper tender, our trade has advanced 50%. Our people can trust their cash and have brought their coin into circulation. End quote. Did you catch that? What was meant by people can trust their cash? Since that time, my microprint library and documents from 1639 to 1800 and the advent of the Internet, I've been able to understand the propaganda more fully. Again, Franklin, 1793, quote, The colonists would gladly have borne the little tax on tea and other matters had it not been that England took away from the colonies their money, which created unemployment and dissatisfaction. The inability of the colonists to get power to issue their own money permanently out of the hands of George III and the international bankers was the prime reason for the war. End quote. Now, how many of you have ever heard that quote? Once again, we see selective quoting has been the propaganda to skew our understanding of the true events, or at the very least, the culminations of events. Rarely do we truly get the sense of the money manipulators or the unseen third party. And so it is today. We are distracted and preoccupied with whatever the crisis of the day or the diversion is, while the money collaborators cover their crimes against mankind everywhere. Governor Morris, 1802, remarked, quote, The rich will strive to establish their dominion and enslave the rest. They always did. They always will. They will have the same effect here as elsewhere if we, by the power of government, do not keep them in their proper spheres. End quote. Incidentally, Governor Morris only served one term. 
Central and banking cartels operate exactly as do the EPA, the CIA, the FBI, the NIH, the CDC, the WHO, and all the rest of these alphabet interest groups in their interest and their interest first. Consider, prior to the current or more modern industrial economic society, with few exceptions, there has been no central authority for the supply of money to the society. The banking cartels of today can change or vary the amount of money in circulation using a number of tools. The banking cartels need to conceal and even mislead governments and business and citizens that the, that the money is to be based on gold and that they be allowed to control the supply. Once under their control, the financial basis of being backed by gold can easily be removed and it is done as quickly and quietly as possible. And then two factors then govern the value of money, supply of it, and demand for it. Various tools are employed in the supply of it. One of these are open market operations, mainly by central banks, buying or selling bonds. Buying bonds releases money into circulation. Selling the bonds returns money to the treasury, reducing circulation. They can also influence money in circulation by directing an increase in interest charge to member banks. An increase in rate reduces borrowing incentive, restricting supply. Lowering is the adverse. Permitting credit incentivizes borrowing. Likewise, deflation. Taxation reduces money and spending increases money. Inflation. In 1815, Napoleon Bonaparte stated, quote, when a government is dependent on bankers for money, they and not the leaders of government control the situation, since the hand that gives is above the hand that takes. Money has no motherland. Financiers are without patriotism and without decency. Their sole object is gain. End quote. By 1816, the Second Bank of the United States was chartered once again for 20 years as a debt-based money system with 50% fractional reserves. By 1820, John Adams stated, quote, All the perplexities, confusions, and distresses in America arise not from the defects of the Constitution or Confederation of the States, not from want of honor or virtue, so much as from downright ignorance of the nature of coin, credit, and circulation, end quote. Now, I'm pretty sure Pastor Ted Island would vehemently disagree with that assessment and statement, as do I, but I certainly do agree with the ignorance of money being a big problem. The U.S. government does not coin money for the payment of expenses, nor does it coin money to make up any difference between what it takes in or spends. If it did, we would never have to borrow any money and would never incur the debt. Andrew Jackson describes the debt-based money system as, quote, mischief which springs from the power which the moneyed interest derives from a paper currency they are able to control, and from the multitudes of corporations with exclusive privileges, which are employed for their benefit. You are a den of vipers and thieves. I, I intend to rout you out, and by the eternal God I will rout you out. If Congress has the right to issue paper money, it was given to them to be used by themselves and not to be delegated to individuals or corporations, end quote. 
but the Congress's proposed renewal in 1816 of the second usury fractional reserve bank charter was vetoed by Jackson as, quote, being subversive to the state's rights and dangerous to the liberties of the people, end quote, which procured a Senate censure of Jackson, I might add, and from 1837 until 1862, the states chartered their own banks, regulated their own reserve requirements, and banknotes were backed partially by gold and silver. But in 1863, Congress enacted the National Banking Act to allow for uniform banknotes to be backed by U.S. Treasuries. However, the fractional reserve concept led to consumer bank runs fearing the loss of their buying and capital power. 1862, the Northern Corporate Industrial Complex, seeking to destroy the Southern states' economic strength, sought to use Lincoln to further their aims. Remember, crisis and solution. Slavery became the tool or the crisis used against the South. I did a message uh, titled The Making of an Idol, which was detailing some of the information regarding Lincoln. And it details some of what appears to be the truth in the era of Lincoln. I have not confirmed all source materials, but from what I understand, as the bankers positioned him into war for the purposes of creating the bank debt necessary to bring the nation under the control of the central bank, factional reserve usury-based monetary system was the goal. By the time of his presidency, 1861, these bank runs were a familiar economic occurrence. In fact, before 1861 had ended, 7,000 businesses had failed. Distrust of the North by the South was at its peak. But issues are diversionary. What we see today in the insistent social war raging on in the country are the diversions for the purpose of making the economic ineptitude practiced by the banking cartels unseen. Lincoln's crimes are not to be cast off in order to bring your attention to the men and the man behind the curtain, so to speak. It is well known that he issued some $450 million in greenback interest-free currency to thwart the 20-plus percent interest demands by the banks for Lincoln's war. Any man or leader once sucked into the banker's web of deception are subject to them, and Lincoln became just that, subjected to them. Too little too late, Lincoln states, quote, The money power preys upon the nation in times of peace and conspires against it in times of adversity. It is more despotic than monarchy, more insolent than autocracy, more selfish than bureaucracy, end quote. Now, I'm not sure who gave the order from the southern contingent to fire the fateful shot and the bombardment upon Fort Sumter that began the war. My guess would be an agent for the banks, simply because of what happened next. The war was on. The restrictive 1% supply of money in 1860-61 to 61 was increased to more than 10% and the bank profits soared. By 1862, another 25% increase in the money supply. But this money supply all came with usury and debt. Sure, the northern farmer kept his farm for now, but not the southern farmer. 
businesses had some liquidity available to keep open and pay expenses, while consumer acquisition and purchasing returned to the people. Consumer income led to the payment of taxes and cities stopped defaulting on their bonds, and the bondholders were skipping off into sunset. By 1863, only a few hundred businesses had failed. Lincoln had two wars, one you may have learned about and the other not. Some leaders of a people or a country understand this principle. Quote, The government should create, issue, and circulate all the currency and credit needed to satisfy the spending power of the government and the buying power of consumers. By the adoption of these principles, the taxpayer will be saved immense sums of interest, money will cease to be master, and become the servant of humanity, end quote. Yes, Lincoln understood the principle and intended to use it, but instead of money becoming the servant of humanity, it facilitated the deaths of nearly three-quarters of a million men, women, black, white, and set in motion the slow and steady control of the citizenry of the North American continent. Listen to how Lincoln's action was viewed half a world away. 1865, London Times. Quote, If that mischievous financial policy, which had its origin in the North American Republican during the late war in that country, should become indurated down to a fixture, that government will furnish its own money without cost, it will pay off its debts and will be without debt. It will become prosperous beyond precedent in the history of the civilized governments of the world. The brains and wealth of all countries will go to North America. That government must be destroyed or it will destroy every monarchy on the globe. End quote. Yes, indeed. No man can serve two masters. I came across this quote on two separate occasions, and the first one I had long forgotten about, but when I saw it the second time, I remembered about it, having seen it the first time, and I searched again to locate it because it was most interesting to me at the time, as it was just after the 2008 financial crisis. Anyhow, the fact that the snobbish London elites saw this fiscal policy of paying a nation's debts by lawful economic coining of the nation's own currency simply could not be allowed and must instead be destroyed. More interesting, perhaps, at least to me, and should be maybe for all Americans, is the diversion. The whole slavery issue was, as the money cartel powers had their sights on America before the Civil War, Sometimes, someone on the outside of a situation is a little more capable of seeing the big picture, and such is the case, I believe, with German Chancellor Otto von Bismarck in 1876, and I quote, The division of the U.S. into federations of equal force was decided long before the Civil War by the high financial power of Europe. These bankers were afraid that if the U.S. remained as one bloc and as one nation, it would attain economic and financial independence, which would upset their financial dominion over the world. End quote. Wow. Otto helps us to at least consider the possibility the division of U.S. was merely one of the diversions capitalized on by the banking cartels.
slavery the other. In fact, if it hadn't been for Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation, the useless banker bought and paid for English Parliament had no desire to re-engage with America's issues, but the proclamation turned it into a moral imperative to intervene, and that is just what they did on behalf of the North. I often have wondered if the bank-backed iconology of Lincoln's immortalization looking out over the reflecting plume isn't just a poetic inference to the reflection Lincoln might have had becoming the tool of the banking cartels had he not been murdered most likely by them for attempting to outflank them with his issuance of debt-free U.S. notes nearly a half a billion dollars. Again, von Bismarck, quote, The death of Lincoln was a disaster for Christendom. There was no man in the U.S. great enough to wear his boots. The bankers went anew to grab the riches. I fear that foreign bankers with their craftiness and tortious tricks will entirely control the exuberant riches of America and use it to systematically corrupt civilization. End quote. I don't know about you, but I think that Otto von Bismarck was seeing into the future. And indeed, it would be Otto von Bismarck's own Germany which would be accused of the greatest moral atrocities of the then-known world and targeted for destruction during the next 40 years. James Garfield was a senator during the cessation crisis who opted for measures to coerce the South to remain with the Union. He also understood the banker's cartel, stating, quote, Whoever controls the volume of money in any country is absolute master of all industry and commerce. And when you realize that the entire system is very easily controlled, one way or another, by a few powerful men at the top, you will not have to be told how periods of inflation and depression originate. End quote. Fifteen years after Lincoln's assassination, and four months into... Garfield's presidency, he met the same fate. Just as monarchs killed their foes, seems like the banking cartels took a cue from the monarchs. To get a sense of the power, one needs to understand the history. The American Bankers Association was established in 1891, ten years after Garfield's assassination. The Panic of 1893 at that time was one of the worst financial crises the cause? How'd you guess? Gold reserves fell nearly a hundred million from nearly two hundred million in the year 1890. The falling gold reserves prompted concerns, domestic and foreign, a U.S. suspension of convertibility could be required. Those concerns would fuel citizens and foreign holders to a conversion of the gold-backed money to gold. This was preceded by slow economic growth in the year before. Weakened by their balance sheets due to the rates of default prompted this arrogant response should the public create a run on the banks, and I quote, On September 1, 1894, we will not renew our loans under any consideration 
On September 1, we will demand our money. We will foreclose and become mortgagees in possession. We can take two-thirds of the farms west of the Mississippi and thousands of them east of the Mississippi as well, and our own price. Then the farmers will become tenants, as in England, end quote. I'm sure that you caught that, as in England. What the Bank of England did to England, the banks in America wanted it clearly understood, they could and would do the same thing in America. Remember the quote of the London Times about the mischievous policy of Lincoln's greenbacks, nearly that half a billion dollars? Had England's banks, or other banks of the United States, at the 20 to 30 percent interest of the time, issued that currency, it likely would have borne a debt of some four to five billion dollars. Thomas Edison stated it quite adequately, relating it directly to the Muscle Shoals Dam project, and I quote, People who will not turn a shovel or contribute a pound of material will collect more money from the United States than will the people who supply all the material and do all the work. This is the terrible thing about interest. But here is the point. If the nation can issue a dollar bond, it can issue a dollar bill. The element that makes the bond good makes the bill good also. The difference between the bond and the bill is that the bond lets the money broker collect twice the amount of the bond and an additional 20%, whereas the currency, the honest sort provided by the Constitution, pays nobody but those who contribute in some useful way. It is absurd to say that our country can issue bonds and cannot issue currency. Both are promises to pay, but one fattens the user and the other helps the people. If the currency issued by the people were no good, then the bonds would be no good either. It is a terrible situation when the government, to ensure the national wealth, must go into debt and submit to ruinous interest charges at the hands of men who control the fictitious value of gold. Interest is the invention of Satan, end quote. You know, that Edison got it pretty well right. Perhaps he'd actually study the word translated Satan as adversary, and truly it is an invention of the adversary of God and man. Not to mention an invention of the organized church. By 1913, the banking cartels have succeeded in fulfilling the American Congress and Senate chambers by their campaign contributions with those who would turn over the Economic House of America's citizenry to the privately owned central bank, the Fractional Reserve Usury-Based Federal Reserve via the Federal Reserve Act, to which U.S. Congressman Charles Lindbergh said, quote, The Federal Reserve Act establishes the most gigantic trust on earth, when President Wilson signs this bill, the invisible government of the monetary power will be legalized. The worst legislative crime of the ages is perpetrated by this banking and currency bill. End quote. What is most interesting about his words are the near prophetic ones he speaks here. Quote, From now on, depressions will be scientifically created. End quote. And this is exactly what the invisible government of the money power did. 
In spite of the vowed neutrality in European conflict giving rise to World War I, Wilson could hardly refuse the banker's desire for war as a diversion for the global reset which was about to unfold in America's economic future. After all, the investments of businesses and banks in loans to the Allies could mean risking it all if they lost. A few pieces of diversionary propaganda would suffice. The 1917 Zimmerman Telegraph supposed atrocities by Germans with Belgian citizens and the torpedoing of the Lusitania brought Wilson before the Congress in 1917 seeking a declaration of war. Mission accomplished. Diversion achieved. Profits soar. Many do not know that it was only given 20 years in this Federal Reserve Act. The original Act states, quote, to have succession or for a period of 20 years from its origination unless it is sooner dissolved by an act of Congress or unless its franchise becomes forfeited by some violation of law, end quote. Well, once again, those constitutional lovers better be answering some hard questions. Do you believe a power granted to Congress, such as coining money and regulating the value thereof, Article 1, Section 8, was ever contemplated by the framers that the power should be delegated to another? A private entity? A cartel? Do you believe an act to do just that is a violation of that law? or just another constitutional authority or power simply delegated or merely appointed by Congress as a delegation of authority to the Federal Reserve. See, there are more questions, certainly. Indeed, why audit the Fed to see how much it bleeds from the American citizenry and indeed the tentacles it has grown the world over? Would it not be better to abolish the law and treat the users to the penalty due? Are these not the den of thieves spoken of by Christ at Matthew 21:13? Are these not the merchants who became rich, Revelation 18:15, in collusion with the kings, the princes of the lands at Revelation 18:3? See, do you think the money changers of Christ's day would not, could not, or do not exist today? I believe we'll have to leave it here at this time with these questions. I'd encourage listeners to also review a message earlier this year, History Lessons of Oppression by Unbiblical Corporate Cartels, as we seek to make God's Word applicable and understandable for today.